right, welcome everyone, and thank you so much for joining us. This is I Am Pulse, the brand new podcast which keeps your finger on the pulse of internal medicine, literature, and practice. I'm your host, Dr. Greg Isinger, and you are with us today on our maiden voyage, where our primary goal is pretty much just to figure out how it is that you make a podcast, and hey, if we can do some teaching and learning along the way, then that'd be fantastic as well. We wanted to take just a broad topic and kind of give an overview today with an expert. So we're here in the studio with Dr. Sean Kelly, who's going to walk us through the wonderful and exciting world of variceal hemorrhage. Welcome, Dr. Kelly. Thanks for having me. And of course, with us as always is our good friend, Dr. Kashal Nandam. Hey guys, how are you doing out there? So we've all been in this scenario, right? It's 3 a.m. You're finally starting to sit down and enjoy that nice, refreshing, uncrustable in the call room. When you suddenly get a call from a panicked nurse on a patient you're cross-covering, cirrhotic patient who's now vomiting up a large amount of blood and has unstable vital signs. Of course, your first instinct is to panic, but then you realize you are on call with the Jean-Claude Van Damme of the hepatology world, Dr. Sean Kelly, and that you have actually nothing to fear at all. Wow. Well, I won't object to that comparison. I'm not nearly as physically flexible, but uh, Jean-Claude, he's a star, and I'll try to be the same. Now, don't let him sell himself short, folks. We'll put some photos in the show notes so you can see exactly how impressive Dr. Kelly's physique actually is. Now, if you're like me, then the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear about an unstable bleeding patient is epidemiology. So why don't we start there? (laughs) Absolutely. So, uh, well, and of course, in that situation, you want to focus on uh, the basics, you know, uh, their vitals and everything else. But, you know, here we are talking about variceal bleeding. So let's get into that. So variceal hemorrhage, it's the most common lethal complication of cirrhosis. Uh, There's a reason we all get nervous with the case you mentioned before. Varices are seen in 30 to 40% of patients with compensated cirrhosis and in about 60% of patients with ascites, which means they have decompensated cirrhosis. Patients without varices develop them at approximately 8% per year, a rate of 8% per year, and uh, small varices progress to large varices at approximately the same rate, again, 8% per year, and the range is 5 to 30%. Um, once varices are diagnosed, there's a 25% chance that they'll bleed within two years, and the size of a varix is the greatest predictor of whether or not it will bleed. That's a pretty high risk. Yeah, yeah, and, and so when I see patients in clinic with cirrhosis, uh, things I focus on most are uh, screening for varices and screening for HCC liver cancer. Now, once a patient has a varix, is that varix there until someone like yourself throws a band around it, or do they kind of ebb and flow on the course of the disease, depending on the portal pressures, how compensated their cirrhosis is, etc.? There certainly is an ebb and flow, and interestingly, uh, we see varices, or we would see varices routinely if we did upper endoscopies in pregnant women. The varices would probably be fairly small, but uh, they, they do form. Uh, the blood vessels are already there, of course, and they become eng- engorged during pregnancy. Um, and back to your question. Uh, so if a patient is, uh, has cirrhosis due to alcohol and they stop drinking, they can go from having relatively large varices to, to smaller varices because the pressures go down. If you take away the inciting issue, whether it's alcohol, hep C, if you get much better control of the factors leading to NASH, all those things get better. The ascites can get better. Um, you know, the size of varices can get better. You know, we don't often uh, rely on that. We'd certainly take another look, but uh, those important factors, and that actually does play into, in some cases, how often you do their endoscopy. 
so in uh, in these cases, how often are you doing endoscopies? For all of these questions, uh, it's helpful to go to the AASLD website uh, to review guidelines for this and any liver-related questions. It's the most up-to-date information. This article on uh, management of varices, it was updated in 2017, so very helpful. We'll put the link to that website in the show notes for all of you to refer to. So in a patient who uh, has never bled and has no varices at all, um, then you can go every three years. In a patient who has small varices, you typically do it about every year. There's specifics on the on the website. We can or on the in the ASLD guideline. We could spend a lot of time, but in general, um, if they don't have varices, you, you can go every two to three years. If they do have varices or decompensated cirrhosis, uh, you're doing it at least every year um, in those situations. All right. Well, take us back to medical school. Remind us about the pathophysiology of how varices actually form. This starts with the. Uh, so patients form varices once they have cirrhosis. So cirrhosis is advanced scarring of the liver, and that is caused by a variety of different uh, etiologies. Uh, hepatitis C is a common one, alcohol, NASH, hepatitis B, reasonably common as well. Uh, whatever the reason is, uh, patients have the inflammation of their liver over time, which then leads to scarring. Uh, that scarring eventually causes portal hypertension. So what portal hypertension is, uh, it's increased pressures in the hepatic vasculature. So it's harder for blood to get through a scarred liver back to the heart. So it takes paths of less resistance, which in most cases are varices along the stomach and esophagus. When a pressure gets to a critical level, uh, if we measured it, that pressure is actually greater than or equal to 12 millimeters of mercury. That's when uh, patients are at risk of rupture of those varices and subsequent bleeding. So what size blood pressure cuff do you find works best for measuring those portal pressures? <laughs> Great question. I uh, didn't see that one coming, did you? hey So, so. It, it brings up a good point. So we measure systemic blood pressure using a cuff. Uh, portal pressures are rarely measured. We sometimes do it. if When it is done, it's done by interventional radiology. They go through the, uh, the IJ and measure uh, the free hepatic pressure and then, uh, you know, insert the catheter further and measure a wedged hepatic pressure. So in doing that, you're trying to get the HVPG, the hepatic venous pressure gradient. And so that's taking the wedge pressure minus the free pressure. So uh, normal is one to five millimeters of mercury. Borderline is anywhere from six to 10. And anything 12 or greater is a patient in whom you, you have risk of uh, a severe bleed. Uh, I would love to know that information on all the patients I scope because that number could be 30 and you just don't know what you're getting into. However, I've never seen any of these patients have that done to get the HPVG. Uh, what would some of the indications of doing such testing be? Yeah, so we do that in patients who, uh, who have heart failure and we're trying to see if uh, you know, they, they have cirrhosis in addition to heart failure. I've done that test multiple times for patients under evaluation for heart transplant. Uh, another situation might be a patient in whom it's too dangerous to do a percutaneous liver biopsy. It's safer to do a biopsy in a patient with low platelets through the IJ. So um, that's a situation. And then in that situation, you might as well get the pressures. So I guess those are the, the two most common scenarios where we do it. If you did have numerical data available for portal pressures on all your variceal bleeds, 
How might that data change your approach or management of the patient? That information would help me know how likely it is that they might need a TIPS. Mm. If someone has a sky-high pressure and, you know, whoever's doing the procedure goes in and tries to do an intervention, whether it's uh, placing bands or really anything, if they have really, really high pressures, that's a patient who can bleed and bleed dramatically. It's certainly not a routine thing because of the risk of, you know, uh, accessing the IJ and, and everything else. In fact, we rarely do liver biopsies at all. We can usually find out if someone has cirrhosis based on exam, labs, imaging, uh, endoscopy. With those, you know, different investigations, we often don't need a biopsy, which imparts risk of bleeding, pain, and other things. So everybody knows about the traditional cirrhosis workup, ultrasound, transaminases, INR, etc. But can you talk to us about some of the newer modalities that are available to assist in the diagnosis of cirrhosis? Sure. Elastography is becoming more and more popular in an effort to avoid getting liver biopsy. So uh, things that are, are fairly obvious for me, if a patient has low platelets, a large spleen, a nodular hepatic contour and imaging, that's a slam dunk diagnosis for a cirrhosis. But sometimes it's more subtle than that. And I encounter this on a regular basis. Patients are coming more and more for treatment of hep C. And if they're in their 50s or 60s, they probably had a hep C diagnosis for a while, and they could potentially have cirrhosis. So um, you're using all the things I already mentioned, the uh, you know platelets and various other labs. Um, there's, there's scoring systems online, so um, APRI, FIB4, um, you can use those scoring systems, but elastography is available both through ultrasound and MRI and can give you a fair assessment. The MRI version is more accurate, um, but both can give you a fair assessment. Their usefulness is most is greatest on either end of the spectrum. So if a patient has very little fibrosis, it's extremely helpful. And if a patient has a lot of fibrosis, it's extremely helpful. The ones in between are tougher because you then might, if you have someone with intermediate fibrosis, what do you do? I mean, it's a judgment call as to whether you need to dig further or not. So we always talk about esophageal varices, but of course, we all remember our Netter's Anatomy Atlas and that there are portosystemic collaterals in other places as well, like in the stomach and the rectum, etc. Why is it that we never think about or worry about those ectopic varices in our bleeding cirrhotic patients? We don't see gastric varices as often, which is convenient because they're more difficult to manage. We definitely see varices in other places, but they're not usually as big of a problem. So uh, on an endoscopy, last week I saw rectal varices. There are no signs of bleeding. The patient hadn't bled. You can bleed from those, and it's difficult to manage. Uh, you can theoretically do the same thing you do in the esophagus. Um, I've is, only seen that done once. What about umbilical varices? Very rare. Um, the, a more common thing actually is what's called uh, ectopic varices, and you'll often see those. Well, I guess anorectal varices are a form of ectopic varices, but uh, around an ostomy. So someone, for example, if someone has uh, ulcerative colitis and had, you know, colectomy, and they have PSC, and they have cirrhosis related to that is one example. You can get varices around the ostomy, and they can bleed pretty briskly, and that can be an issue complicated to manage. Sometimes you inject sclerosin right at that spot. Uh, sometimes you ask uh, IR to do a procedure to obliterate the area internally. Um, so they happen, they just don't happen very often. So no offense, but reading one of your endoscopy reports is often like reading a foreign language. 
So besides being amongst the top 10 things that Cush looks for as he's scoping along the beach, tell us about what a white nipple sign is and a red whale sign and some of these other bizarre terms that we might come across in your reports. <laughs> wow. Uh, well, um, yeah, that's true. It, it is a very suggestive term. Sometimes a variceal hemorrhage happens and, and people aren't necessarily even aware because in diagnosing it, sometimes it's obvious. The endoscopist goes down. If you see blood spurting from a varix, you have a variceal bleed. Duh. But um, in a patient who might have endoscopic signs of recent bleeding, so, so the white nipple sign it looks like basically a white scab on a varix. Um, that's a sign of a varix that had recently bled or a clot that's adhering to the varix. That's another sign. Um, red whale signs look like whip marks going down. And a varix in general looks like a snake coming up the esophagus. When we do an endoscopy, we have a view like we're looking down a tunnel and the, uh, the varices are, are snake, snake-like uh, projections that, that go longitudinally down the length of the esophagus. So these red whale signs look like whip marks and patients with those are at higher risk of bleeding than those who don't have them. Although you can also uh, sort of make a call that a patient had a variceal bleed if they had hematemesis or if they had blood in the stomach and no other potential sources of bleeding besides varices. You can then say this patient had a variceal bleed, they should be treated, um, you know, it shouldn't be treated as a mystery. You can then say they've had a variceal bleed. Back to our patient. So we're the hospitalist on call. We see the patient. Uh, they're not hypotensive. Their vitals are stable, but there's an obvious amount of uh, hematemesis coming from the patient. Things that we would do acutely, PPI therapy, octreotide, and it seems like we also give antibiotics in these cases. Um, why don't we talk about the evidence behind each of these therapies? Sure. So PPI therapy for treatment of a variceal bleed, there's not necessarily much data behind that. We're really treating in the event that we're dealing with an ulcer rather than a varix. Um, so that's, and certainly there's data to support the use of PPIs for an ulcer bleed. And so that's really the indication there. Okay, so back to Kush's question. What about octreotide and antibiotics? Um, octreotide, there is data behind that. And uh, you start with a bolus and then do a continuous infusion. Interestingly, uh, there's been situations where you know, people scope a patient the next day and the patient's been on octreotide for 24 hours and the varices are a lot less impressive because the octreotide does work. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's... Uh, it affects uh, flow into the hepatic vasculature and, uh, you know, essentially shunts it away. So uh, the varices are less prominent. And, you know, in, by doing that, uh, it reduces the pressures and hopefully, you know, can give a patient a better chance of surviving a bleed. It is important to note here that although the mechanism for octreotide and variceal hemorrhage is intuitive, the data supporting its use is spotty at best. A large Cochrane review in 2008 found no significant mortality benefit associated with the use of somatostatin analogs, although there was a trend towards decreased transfusion requirement of about 0.7 units. Nonetheless, the latest AASLD guidelines do describe octreotide as the mainstay of medical therapy in variceal hemorrhage, so using octreotide does still seem to be the standard of care. Uh, lastly, antibiotics. It's actually, antibiotics have the greatest supporting data in terms of survival. And it seems like out of the three, that's the major one that benefits patients' mortality, right? Absolutely. And so ceftriaxone is the typical first choice, but if patients have allergies, uh, you can go to ciprofloxacin. 
really most antibiotics will be helpful, and that's also on the uh, on the AASLD site in terms of recommendations for what to use. Um, and no need to go the longest you'd want to give antibiotics for a bleeding situation is seven days. Typically, we do five, uh, but that is an important part of treatment, and that's actually for any bleed in a patient with cirrhosis. So even if you do the endoscopy and they're found to have an ulcer, not varices, as the source of bleeding, you would still give antibiotics for treatment. Um, that speaks to the uh, infectious issues related to cirrhosis. Patients with cirrhosis have are immunocompromised. Uh, that's why they tend to get this spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. It's really not spontaneous. It's really bacterial translocation from the gut into the uh, peritoneal fluid. And so, uh, you know, patients who bleed are, are at risk of getting uh, sepsis and dying. You know, if you treat the bleed, they can still die from an infection, and you, you might not identify the cause before that happens. In this scenario, is the fact that they're having variceal bleeding almost a marker for increased portal pressures, which would put them at risk for SBP? Or is there something about the bleeding itself that puts the patient at increased risk of infection? Both. Yeah, because, uh, you know, having that, uh, you know, if blood's coming out, bacteria can go in through the same, essentially, entry point. And uh, patients with cirrhosis, uh, the, the infection can really flourish within the peritoneal fluid because they lack essentially the proteins and, uh, you know, the immunoglobulins to fight an infection that other people have. So, um, yeah, you sort of have two ways of getting infection there. Um, and then another question that we've had on the floor is um, patients getting Dobhoff's or NG tubes, what are the, what are the risks with people that have various known varices that have bled before and those that have gotten recent uh, banding? It's definitely a consideration. Uh, I've done plenty of scopes for patients who have esophageal erosions just because of the tube that's there. And so you have to weigh the, the benefit of placing the tube. A situation might be someone with encephalopathy who's not waking up. Sometimes you just have to do it with the understanding that uh, we'll, go, we'll go down again and scope them if we need to. Um, because, you know, if, if they're going to be just grossly encephalopathic for several days, um, you know, then they have risk of aspiration pneumonia and all sorts of other things. So uh, I think it's a case-by-case -case basis, basically. And, and you want a patient, if you're going to do that, you want a patient on a, on a floor where they're getting good monitoring, and uh, if something does happen, you can jump on it quickly, whether that's a bleed or whether that's, uh, you know, aspiration, which... Certainly, the risk of that is, is pretty high if you got a tube in your esophagus. So, definitely a case by case there. In terms of the pre endoscopy management of these patients, one of the things that's gained increasing attention in the world of hemorrhagic shock in the context of trauma is the use of transexamic acid or TXA. Unfortunately, there's been mixed results in the literature in terms of using TXA for upper GI bleeding. Currently underway, though, is the HALT IT trial out of the UK which is addressing this and seeking to enroll a large cohort of patients to look at whether TXA could help in the pre-endoscopy management of upper GI bleeding. So keep a lookout for that study, and we'll put a link in the show notes to the study's website so you can take a look. Of course, resuscitation also includes the administration of blood products, and one of the things that we're often warned about is not to give too much blood to a variceal bleed because of the danger of increasing portal pressures and potentially exacerbating a bleed. What are your thoughts on our goals for 
resuscitation for these patients. We spoke earlier about how much blood do you give, and in general, you're, you're looking for a range of keeping the patient's hemoglobin from 7 to 9. If a patient is profusely bleeding, you throw those rules out the window and you just save their life. You give whatever you need to keep that patient, you know, from exsanguinating. All right, well, let's move on to some questions about what you guys actually do about these things down in the endoscopy suite. But before getting into specifics, I think it's important to point out that many of these patients will require intubation prior to endoscopy in order to protect their airways. Although there's no great evidence out there that prophylactic intubation actually decreases the risk of aspiration or other adverse outcomes, there is expert consensus that certain patients should be intubated prior to endoscopy, and this includes patients with ongoing hematemesis, hemodynamic instability, altered mental status with a GCS less than 8, or those who are too agitated to safely tolerate the procedure. What is the role of um, sclerotherapy versus beta blocker, non-selective beta blocker? Sclerotherapy isn't used very much anymore, so uh, band ligation is the uh, typical, if we're going to do anything endoscopically, band ligation is what we'd usually do. Sclerotherapy used to be very popular. Uh, You you literally inject the sclerosin into the varix. Um, It's more dangerous. Uh, You know, you're, you're... you're going, you're putting a needle into something that could potentially bleed, so we don't use sclerosins very much anymore. Sometimes, again, in dire situations, we would. Um, so you can use, in patients with even medium to large size varices, you can use uh, non-selected beta blockers, which include natalol, propranolol, carvedilol, and not do band ligation. Most of the time in clinical practice, band ligation is what's done, but you have support from the guideline to do either one in a patient who hasn't bled. In a patient who has bled, you would do both band ligation and uh, non-selected beta blockers. The only situation where you'd be hesitant to use the non-selected beta blockers is someone who has ascites and tenuous renal function because beta blockers can uh, worsen outcomes in that scenario. When you're doing the actual banding, what are you exactly doing with the band? Mm, that's a great question. So, um, like I said, the, the varices are snakes, going down the esophagus longitudinally. And so uh, if you can think about a varicose vein on your leg, for example, uh, we, we add a device to the end of the scope that uh, is basically, a, it's a cylinder, and we use suction to bring that varicose vein into that part of the scope. And then there's a, there's a, a wheel on the side of the scope that we twist, and the rubber band goes over the cylinder and then around you know, that part of the varicose vein that's sucked up into the cylinder. So when we're done with that, it looks like a woman's hair in a bun in the esophagus. It's amazing how this all works. It's amazing that you can do that and you can stop a bleed. I mean, uh, it just, it changes the, the flow and the pressures in a way that most of the time, that's all you need to do. And again, if you place four or five, it just looks like, again, like a, a woman's hair in a bun sort of climbing up the esophagus in various places. All right, well, add Harry Bun sign to our list of dirty hepatology lingo from this episode. There you go. Now, th- these aren't hairy, though. They're very smooth looking. Uh, if you do a, a good job with band ligation, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. You know, I love scoping for those uh, variceal legs on the beach. <laughs> um, and the other thing, another question I had with the bands, how often, like, how long do they typically last and how long, like, do they fall off at some point? They do. Eventually they fall off, and they're so small, they look like probably a, a tiny black olive that the patient would never see in their stool, or they could potentially vomit it up again, it would look like a tiny black olive. So um, you, uh, 
you place the bands and then recommendations are going back anywhere from two to four weeks to band again. And uh, so sometimes if I've had to go in sooner, you, you, you go in and you see there's a pretty gnarly looking ulcer sometimes. That, that's what happens actually. So the, the area scars down and then becomes an ulcer and then eventually heals. And so if, if you do an, a scope on someone who's had banding multiple times, the bottom of their esophagus is it's typically the bottom is, is really scarred down and kind of bizarre looking sometimes. Um, but yeah, eventually the, the bands will fall off. You get an ulceration, that varix gets smaller, and you keep doing that until the varices are, uh, you know, gone. So you do that every two to four weeks until they're not there anymore. Then you usually wait about six months, and then you, you stretch them out to about a year. So you mentioned gastric varices a little bit earlier. Any difference in the way that you manage those compared to esophageal varices? Gastric varices are a unique problem. So if you have a gastric varix that actually starts from the esophagus, that's called a GOV1 varix, you can treat them the same way you would an esophageal varix, just with band ligation. The other types of gastric varices aren't effectively treated in that way, and that it sort of speaks to the stomach in general. It's a much thicker muscle than you have in the esophagus or the duodenum, so um, it's, it's harder to intervene upon a varix in that way. So what we then do is inject glue. The official term is uh, N-butyl cyanoacrylate, and uh, it's not available at, at all facilities, and it needs to be done in situations where... Uh, you know, the providers have expertise. I keep uh, it in my basement all the time. There you go. Uh, it is the, it's also called Dermabond, so it, it is used uh, in surgeries already. And uh, what you do is you literally inject this glue directly into the varix, and it's a, it's a harrowing thing. I mean, most of the time it goes very smoothly, but like I mentioned before, we don't know what pressure is on the other side of that wall. And so you're literally sticking a needle into something that is filled with blood, of an unknown pressure. So it can come out like a fire hydrant. Uh, I've seen it happen, terrifying. Um, and, and what you do in that situation, if you actually cause a bleed by doing this, you just find another spot, inject, and you inject, 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 inject this glue until it stops. Uh, there's, at this point, plenty of instructional videos through the ASGE, that's our endoscopic uh, sort of guideline site. Um, but then also just on YouTube, and you see the procedures that go well, procedures that don't go well, and so that's really more of a GI thing. But to answer your question, absolutely there is a, a role for glue, and it's an expanding role because in patients with high melt scores, so again, the, the, the melt score that makes you nervous, if a melt score is 15 to 18 or higher, a tips can be very dangerous, can be a deadly intervention. So, you know, in patients with melt scores like that, you definitely think about using glue to treat gastric varices and, and hopefully, uh, you know, give them a better outcome than you might have with the tips. So back to our patient, we, uh, we call you in, um, you're scoping him and there, you've banded a couple, but there's just one, um, one bugger that just is stubborn. Uh, are there any other things that you can do to control that bleeding? In, in the case where we have a varix that's bleeding that definitely needs to be intervened upon and it's not working, band ligation isn't working, that is a situation where I then use sclerosin. Various facilities have different scler sclerosins, um, and really only the GI physicians need to know that. Um, 
So we'd potentially inject directly and hopefully that would stop it. If it doesn't, then you have to, you know, think about a tips potentially or, and, and if it's bleeding fast enough. Ooh, here it comes. That's a situation in which we invoke. Wait for it. The famous Blakemore tube. Ah, the Blakemore tube. The Blakemore. The mythical one. It's a big one. And you should know that we've already promised our audience that Kush and I will be demonstrating Blakemore placement here in the studio today, so hope you brought one with you. Perfect. Yeah, I always I always have one. So, but that, that's a that's a dire situation and something we don't encounter very often. So, now we enter the scenario where she's going crazy, patient's getting hypotensive, and um, there's just blood everywhere. So, how why don't you explain what a Blakemore is? I've never seen one in real life, actually. Sure, sure. So, um, again, this is uh, a last-ditch effort type situation, and there were trials done at this point many years ago, um, you know, that showed Blakemore is not the ideal first intervention. Uh, it was first developed in 1950. It really hasn't changed much since then, uh, and the indication is tamponade of a life-threatening bleed. Uh, it's a very complicated setup and truly the best thing to do, even in an emergent situation, if you plan to place this, is to look up a specific YouTube video. Uh, it was created by uh, an attending from Yale and comes up really easily when you search for it and really outlines things. It's worth taking five minutes to look at that video and make sure you're set up to do it right. Of course, we'll put a link to that video in our show notes for you. If you're doing this wrong, you inflate the balloon in the wrong place, you can cause a lot more harm than good. Uh, key things to just know in general, uh, you only inflate the gastric balloon. You don't inflate the esophageal balloon, ever. It really shouldn't exist. It should be taken off, but it's there. You would never inflate that because your risk of causing esophageal necrosis is very high. The varices that tend to bleed are usually in the fundus, so even if it's a gastric varus, varix, a... Uh, Blakemore can, can work, and uh, so that would uh, deal with that part. And then the, the varices that are in the esophagus that bleed are typically in the lower esophagus. So um, that pressure, it pulls up quite a bit. Um, you know, it's I don't know how much it moves that area, but several centimeters, um, and it's enough to tamponade. It can be placed, uh, essentially you can push it down using the scope, so you can endoscopically kind of move it. It's not necessarily easy to do. Oftentimes, you just insert it the way normal way you'd insert uh, an NG tube. You could also insert it through the mouth. You just need to make sure it's going down. And uh, your next move is to then inflate to about, you test the balloon outside the body, make sure it inflates normally. It's hard to inflate as much as they tell you to. They want you to put in about 250 cc's, and uh, that's a lot, believe it or not. It feels like you're going to you know, cause a thing to explode. So you test it with 50, put the tube in, do, uh, put another 50 cc's of air in there, and then you get an x-ray to see, you know, is it in the right spot? If it is in the right spot, um, then you'd inflate it more to bring it up to at least probably 200 would be your goal. And then you, you, you set it up in this MacGyver type fashion, uh, basically using an ortho bed and you, you, you essentially tie the Blakemore tube up and over, and then you have to be careful with how much uh, weight you put on there. All I would ever use is a 500 cc bag, so half a liter of fluid. Um, I've seen, 
heavier bags than that, so a liter of fluid, uh, you can pull, you basically cause a hiatal hernia and pull that balloon into the mediastinum. Easy enough to do because our bodies were not designed to handle much pressure at that, at that point. We're not built for that. I can't imagine that there's been a whole lot of evolutionary pressure to protect our species from people trying to pull our stomachs out through our mouths. Exactly. That's a very important point. So I guess orthobeds have replaced the football helmet as our method for securing the Blakemore tube in place, huh? You, you can have it in the room just because you're a Buckeye fan, but I wouldn't put it on the patient. Going back to tips, actually. What exactly is tips? Yeah, it's a really cool procedure. So uh, it's done by interventional radiology. They access the, the IJ and they, they go from, they usually go to the, the rightmost um, hepatic vein and then uh, and they, they are shooting for the uh, corresponding portal vein on the other side. So what they're doing in, the, in that, they're connecting those two vessels and then placing a stent between the portal inflow and then the, the outflow. And uh, the liver is very unique. I mean, the liver gets 70 to 75% of its blood flow, its venous blood flow coming from the gut. And, uh, you know, only the, the remainder is coming from the hepatic artery. So um, you're trying to get that, the majority of the liver's blood flow, uh, you know, you're just trying to, to shunt it so it gets through the, the liver more easily. And so, yeah, bottom line, this TIPS is a stent that's connecting uh, portal venous inflow to the outflow through the IVC. And uh, it's not a very long stent. It is, uh, it's called a covered stent. And by with covered stents, uh, we reduced risk of in infection. And, uh, you know, in many cases, a very helpful intervention, not just for treatment or prevention of recurrent bleeding uh, used to treat refractory ascites or uh, pleural fusions related to liver disease. It's really a pretty incredible thing. Most often, we're, we're trying to use that as a bridge to transplant. Because then once, once you remove that liver, the tips is gone because the, the tips is within the liver. So what is the shelf life of a tips, both in terms of the durability of the shunt itself as well as the expected mortality in the patients who have to receive it? The, the shunt itself can last a long time. Sometimes they need to be revised. They can, they can clot suddenly or gradually, actually. But uh, the bigger issue is that you're dealing with a very sick patient to begin with. So someone who needs a tips shunt, whether it's for bleeding or fluid management, you know, their, their prognosis is pretty bad. So in a patient who uh, develops hepatic encephalopathy or ascites, the risk of dying is 50% in two years. Uh, any patient who comes in with a variceal bleed, their risk of mortality is 10% every time that happens. So, uh, and, you know, I can give more and more facts in that regard, but uh, cirrhosis and especially decompensated cirrhosis and stage liver disease is a serious disease process where the prospect of death comes up a lot. And so um, I wouldn't say you're, you're depending on the tips. I think you're depending on their disease process to know if they're going to survive or not. It's important to note that although the tips can be a remarkable procedure to improve the quality of life for folks with refractory ascites or recurrent variceal bleeding, there are certain groups of patients that we really need to think twice before performing the procedure. Those with severe heart failure or pulmonary hypertension can experience dramatic increases in preload due to the influx of portal blood from into the IVC following the procedure, which can throw them into worse heart failure. In addition, hepatic encephalopathy can be made much worse because you're eliminating the liver's role in filtering the portal venous blood. Other things are relatively intuitive, like severe coagulopathy, uncontrolled infection, 
The presence of hepatic cysts or hepatocellular cancer can also be a contraindication due to the concern for bleeding during the procedure. Um, and then it just goes back to the MELD score. The general rule is the borderline values are MELD scores from 15 to 18. If it's lower than that, you should be okay. If it's higher than that or in that range, you'd, you'd pause and you'd really wonder. Again, emergently, if that's your only option, you do it. If you're shunting a fair amount of blood away from the liver that's just simply passing through it, not perfusing it, you can cause uh, an ischemic liver injury. And so, you know, you see that sometimes and, and you see that in a patient with a high melt because, you know, they, they really don't have, they have a slim margin. And if you take away the blood that the liver needs to, you know, for perfusion, you get liver failure and then that, that's it. So that's why if a patient has a high melt, you sure want them to be listed before you do a TIPS if you can. What about the role of TIPS in the acutely bleeding patient who's failing standard therapies in the GI lab? Have you ever had a situation where you've called in interventional radiology to perform a TIPS emergently? Yeah, that, that has happened. And so in my patients who I think could have an episode like that, I make sure we scope at different places. Um, we only have uh, interventional radiology readily available for TIPS at the main hospital. So I've had a situation where I, you know, more than one time, where I, I, I make sure that patient is, the endoscopy is performed here because if it goes awry, then we at least have sort of that backup, and it comes into play. So say that everything we've discussed so far has failed. When is it time to get the surgeons involved? There is one situation. It's, it's quite rare. So you can do a splenorenal shunt. So that's another way of uh, addressing a variceal bleed. Years ago, uh, the threshold for involving surgery for a bleed was about six units of blood. You'd, you'd then take a patient to surgery. So this goes back to I mean, this goes a ways back, I guess. Maybe not too far, but yeah, if you've given a patient six units of blood, it's probably time for surgery is, is what the approach used to be. That's no longer really the approach, but it's still a thought. So um, in a patient without cirrhosis, you'd certainly consider surgery to address, uh, you know, over a gastric or duodenal ulcer. In a patient with cirrhosis, it's a dangerous, surgery is very dangerous in that population. So it'll be a rare, rare situation where you involve them because involving them, the patient might, is probably going to die. You know, I mean, it, it would be a last ditch serious thing. So I, I don't think routinely I would get them involved. Talk to us a little bit about the kind of complications you worry about following band ligation. I know I've gotten phone calls uh, from the floor after a patient's been down for banding that they're complaining of chest pain. I never really know whether some pain should be expected following that procedure or whether I should be worried about something serious like esophageal perforation. A very, very rare complication if you place the bands in a way that you actually, you, you can occlude the esophagus potentially. Uh, that's not going to happen very often, but it, it is possible. Um, things you'd worry about, uh, I mean, you, you, these patients can also get MIs. I mean, that can happen at strange times. So you always want to think about that. If it just sounds like it doesn't relate to the procedure and something different, you want to be listening for that. Um, other than that, uh, this has happened enough times that I kind of know what I'm listening for. But uh, if, if, if someone's unfamiliar with what kind of happens, they need to talk to gastroenterologist, I, you know, or have the patient come in. I would certainly err on the side of caution and how often in those situations. How often have you seen esophageal perforation from this? 
Uh, from band like Asian, I've never seen it. No, and I've I've never actually, never heard of a case in in my training. It's, it's possible. It's possible to perforate the esophagus anytime you do an endoscopy, but it's it's rare. All right. Well, now I feel way less smart for running in the room and pressing on the chest to look for Hammond's crunch every time I get one of these phone calls. Oh, you should. You definitely should. Greg likes his crunch, though. (laughs) Hey, I'll take crunchy over soggy any day. All right. Well, that about wraps it up for our discussion of the murky world of variceal bleeding. Thanks once again to our special guest, the Jean-Claude Van Damme of the Hepatology World, Dr. Sean Kelly, for helping us to be able to approach that very scary patient in the middle of the night with the strength and confidence of Van Damme himself. No problem. Thanks Appreciate for having it. me. Appreciate it. Now I'll be able to go scope on the beach and see some whales and uh, white nipples. White nipples. <laughs> That's right, everyone. Hide your wives and daughters. Thanks for listening, everyone, and make sure to check out the show notes and leave your comments on the blog. Look forward to hearing from you. 